Hello, everybody, and welcome to the NFL Road Show. Post week 18, now it's the postseason. Holy heck, what a weekend that was. So fun. Uh, week 18 is a trip, you guys, because half the games are like evidence that we all have like a collective addiction problem when it comes to the NFL. Uh, like Panthers Saints over here scraping together a 10-7 final score in a game that totally doesn't matter and in which the winning team doesn't even have a single player over 100 yards, including their quarterback who had an awful game. Poor Sam Darnold, after a great month, just left the worst possible taste in people's mouths in this one, completed five of 15 passes for 43 yards, no touchdowns, and two picks. He had a 2.8 passer rating. In a game where he had a chance to really finish strong and generate some low-key off-season buzz. I mean, nobody was going to be like clamoring to, let's go sign Sam Darnold. Please make him my my starter. But I think that we probably would have heard a little bit of like, hey, look what he did once he finally had a competent coach. I think that now that conversation will probably go away. Uh, but again, the point that I was making, that game was awful and we all watched right? And that wasn't the only game that was like that. But then on the flip side, we had like the Bills game with that Naeem Hines touchdown on the very first play to send that crowd into outer space. That was bonkers. What a way to start that game, to start the day. And such good news today, Jamar Hamlin, stable enough to be moved from the hospital that he was in in Cincinnati and uh, will now take the next steps of his recovery at a hospital in Buffalo. The doctors at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center said about Damar Hamlin that he jumped up and down and set off every alarm in the ICU on that opening kick return touchdown. And can you think of a better way for the slate of games on Sunday to start than with a touchdown in that manner? Um so unlikely and to get the Buffalo crowd and the Buffalo team, the emotions there were just incredible. Um, there were also some really strong emotions in the afternoon window when JJ Watt left the football field for the last time. And it was awesome to see George Kittle cheering for, for him along with, of course, all of the people in the stands as they allowed him to leave the field during a timeout, a lot of really cool moments throughout the day, but back to that Buffalo and uh, new England game, aside from the Patriots in that game, the, teams that needed to get stuff done that had stuff on the line um, in the early window, they got it done and it didn't work out for all of the teams. Like the Steelers didn't get the help that they needed from the jets, but they did their part managed to end on a good note, got the win and got to above 500. So Tomlin's streak is intact 16 straight years without a losing record. That's just remarkable. And they're a team that I think could be a lot better next year that we should keep our eye on. They have some really nice players at key positions there. I think there's some improvement that we could see from Kenny Pickett at quarterback, but I think he played a lot better down the stretch than people necessarily noticed or thought. He was not a guy who put up big fantasy numbers, or made a ton of wow plays, but he did what they asked him to do pretty well. Did you know that he was in the last seven weeks of the season, so since week 12, he was PFF's second highest graded quarterback at a much lower volume than the other guys around him in that category. Like he had four touchdowns and one interception in that time compared to 
Burroughs 13 and four, but still seven straight weeks of positive expected points added to his name. I wouldn't be surprised if he got a new offensive coordinator this off season. I'm not sure how they feel about Matt Canada there. I know some people uh, feel very negatively about him, so we'll see. We'll see what direction they go in there, but um, I think they'll make, you know, a few tweaks and, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they turned out to be a playoff team next year, but not this year. Because the Dolphins scraped out a win in the early window with Skylar Thompson as their quarterback. It was not pretty, but I think they were the best team that was left in the mix. I think that the right team got in with that seven seed in the AFC, and now we'll see what they do with Tua. I think that's likely going to be one of the biggest stories that we're tracking this week. And we're hearing that he wants to play, and of course he does. And frankly, the Dolphins need him to play. I mean, this was a team that was scoring 30 points a game regularly in November and averaged 16 points a game without him. But in light of recent events, I think that they might have a hard time clearing him from what most of us think was his third concussion of the year. And frankly, as much as we all want to see them be what they're capable of being in the postseason, I think right now, more than ever before, we should be able to keep in perspective what's most important, and that is obviously to his health. And I still think that it's going to be hard for the Dolphins and Dolphins fans to have this injury that you can't see, and that's obviously the biggest issue with concussions. You can't see them. So it ends up feeling like someone's making a choice to either let them play or hold them out, as opposed to like a broken leg. Nobody looks at a broken leg and says, oh, they should let him play. It's just obvious that the person can't play. So that's the tough spot about concussions. I think when it feels like a choice, there will be people who feel like it's the wrong choice. I'm sure there were some Texans fans that felt like there were some wrong choices made in their game, which they won and therefore sacrificed the number one pick in the draft, giving it to Chicago. And yes, it probably would have been in the best interest of the franchise to lose the game, which they tried to win. Like, didn't just fall into a win. They went for two and the win, and they got it and moved out of the top draft spot as a result. I actually picked them to win that game, and I'm not surprised that they went about it completely differently than the Bears did their Week 18 game. Here's why. The Bears already got what they needed to get out of this year, and that's a viable quarterback. They know that they have that now in Justin Fields. Though my guest today, Kevin Cole, is, I think, a little bit less sure about that and thinks that they should still think about drafting a quarterback at number one anyway, and we'll talk about that. I don't think so. I think they got Fields and can go back to their corners now and come up with an offseason plan to better build the roster around him, and I think that they really had nothing to gain in that since in Week 18. Texans, on the other hand, scrappy team, with a coach who needed to finish strong to either save his job, which didn't work, Lovey Smith fired on later in the day, actually, on Sunday, or um, worst case scenario, if you're going to get fired, he's incentivized to at least go out with a win and end on a good note. And it wasn't just the coach, honestly. Like, name me a player there in Houston that has absolutely nothing to prove. I mean, there are a few, Laramie Tunsil, Damian Pierce. I'll give you that there are some guys there, but you get my point. The roster is made up almost entirely of guys who need to put good play on tape for jobs or money. Um, like, this is not a roster with cornerstone players who needed to protect what they'd already established. So I felt like it was predictable that they would go out there, that they would play hard. I thought they were the better team. Um, than the Indianapolis Colts. And I'm happy for the guys on that Texan squad there that were able to pull out a win. Those have been 
tough to come by this year. That said, I can totally understand why a Texans fan might be frustrated with the way that things played out. I spent the better part of the afternoon window frustrated myself with an eye on the Chargers game, alternately holding my breath and yelling at the television. I have no idea why Brandon Staley played the starters as long as he did, with absolutely nothing to gain in terms of playoff standing. Once the Ravens lost, taking the opposite approach, by the way. I mean, they could have moved up to the five with a win, and they could have forced a coin flip for home field next week. Um, They didn't even try. They rested their guys, who I assume must have really needed rest, were probably pretty banged up, and they effectively waved the white flag in their white unis and lost to the Bengals and ended up in the sixth spot. So the Chargers could not fall out of the five seed obviously couldn't move up from five either, and they knew this before the team took the field, but they still took the field with their starters who have suffered so many injuries this year. Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, Joey Bosa, I mean, the offensive line as a whole, it seems, finally got healthy, started to click, and then risked all of that yesterday, in my opinion, for reasons that I cannot fathom. Only reason that makes sense and some people do this, is to keep guys sharp, maintain momentum, take the opportunity maybe to work on some things that need work. But this team of all teams should have, in my opinion, prioritized health. This was my preseason Super Bowl pick. The pieces are there, but they couldn't stay on the field this year. And so here we are, headed into the postseason as a wild card, taking unnecessary chances in Week 18. And what do you know? People got hurt. And while the headlines say... Mike Williams, back spasms, x-rays negative, expected to play against Jacksonville. There's also this description from Daniel Popper, who covers the team for The Athletic, about Williams after the game. Emerging from the medical area inside the locker room with his arm draped around an athletic trainer who is helping the wide receiver walk slowly and painfully. Williams could barely put any weight on his left side. So then as he limped to the bus, uh, the quote, He kept his arm around the trainer the entire time, appearing to need the support just to move. Ugh! And for what? And I know injuries happen, but they didn't need to happen in this game. They just didn't need to. And we generally frown on injuries happening when they don't need to. That's why athletes have clauses in their contract that say they can't go snowboarding and stuff and why they're discouraged from like riding motorcycles. We don't need to take unnecessary risk. And Brandon Staley absolutely did. And this is a guy who doesn't play his guys in the preseason. So it's not even consistent with his approach. There's no reason that Justin Herbert should be on the field in the final minutes of the third quarter. Only to pull him in the fourth quarter once you have dug yourself into an 11-point hole to Denver, who they ended up losing to while trying to win Denver. So if you were looking for momentum headed into the postseason, you got literally the exact opposite. You got an oh shit moment for these players to work through this week. And I hate being critical of coaches because I think it's a really hard job and there's a lot going on. And I am super big on giving the benefit of the doubt um, to these coaches and going from there. You've heard me defend Hackett this year. You've heard me defend Rivera last week. You've heard me defend Staley, but this one really frustrated me. And I couldn't help but think as I sat there watching, this is the way you hand your job to Sean Payton. This is it. On a brighter note, um, not for Packers fans, sorry Packers fans, I feel the exact opposite way about Dan Campbell. 
And the way that his team finished the season and the way I think that he should get credit for how they finished the season and because I am the type to say I told you so, I told you so. I knew they were going to win that game. I mean, I, I didn't know it, but I felt it because it's so on brand for that team. And although they were eliminated moments before their game when the Seahawks beat the Rams, I thought I cannot imagine a Dan Campbell squad coming out and just laying down, especially against the Packers and a quarterback that would inevitably smugly acted like it was a given that they were going to win that game. And who might be done in Green Bay, that clip of him telling Jamison Williams, who asked for a jersey swap afterward, I got to keep this one. That's going to give us something to talk about for the next few months. Um, but we'll get back to that storyline at a later date. I don't particularly think that the Packers were a very good team this year, even though they won some games down the stretch and started to turn things around, or it looked like they were turning things around. The wins um, in the latter part of the season came against the Bears, the Rams, the Dolphins, in a game where we now know Tua had a concussion for the second half and threw three interceptions, and the Vikings, who I don't think are very good. So I know the Packers won those games down the stretch, and you give them credit for winning, right? Those are games that they might have lost earlier in the season. So they were on to something in the defense and the takeaways, and I know. But personally, I felt like the win streak was misleading and that if they had gotten into the postseason with a win on Sunday night, they weren't really going to go anywhere in the playoffs anyway. So again, I'm not surprised that the Lions won that game. And back to my main point, even in spite of being eliminated, I'm not surprised that they won the game because if there is anything that this Lions team is coached to do, it is to fight. And they don't always do that successfully when it comes to like wins because in a lot of cases, they don't have the better roster, but they have a much better roster than they did last year, which keeps them in games and they have a roster that fights. And I'll be honest with you, they didn't get into the postseason, but they did exactly what I expected them to do this year, which was be in contention for a playoff spot. I said that in the offseason. This is a team that I don't see winning a Super Bowl this year, but I think that they'll be in the playoff mix. And they were. They got to where it was reasonable to assume that they could go. That was their best case scenario for me. And they got there. So I see that as a win. And they will bring in some more pieces this offseason and they'll take that next step next year. And I'm confident that they will. And because they're building and they're exactly where they should have been, I thought Campbell can sell this to them. They can finish strong. He can pitch to them why finishing strong matters. And I even thought that he might use Khalif Raymond and Jamal Williams and the milestones that they could reach and the money that they could make in the case of Khalif as motivators. Go get your guys their money. Jamal was six yards away going into the game from $250,000, a bonus. You knew that was going to happen. But he also had the Sanders single-season record to break, which he got. And Raymond needed two catches to get $125,000 and 100 yards to get another $125,000. So 100 yards was clearly a tall task, and he did not get it. But you know who their leading receiver ended up in the game with 66 yards and four catches? It was Khalif Raymond. And what a freaking turnaround for Detroit to have the second overall pick in the draft and make it to week 18 before you're eliminated and to win in the week you're eliminated to go down fighting. Which brings me to the Jaguars, who had the number one pick in the draft and didn't go down fighting because they didn't go down. They are still alive and facing the Chargers this week as the division champs coming out of the AFC South and the four seed 
in the conference. We'll hear from Kevin Cole from the Unexpected Points Substack and podcast in just a little bit about how he sees that matchup and who might be the dark horse team to make a run in the postseason this year because it feels like there usually is one. But first, we welcome to the show Mia O'Brien from 1010XL in Jacksonville. She's a great Twitter follow if you're looking for Jaguars news. She covers the team really well, a team that has been playing much better as of late and is now preparing to host its first playoff game in Jacksonville since 2017. Let's break the huddle. Oh yeah, let's go! Two on, two on, two. Ready? Ready? Mia, hi. Thank you so much for making time. I know you just wrapped up a three-hour radio show talking about the Jaguars that I would imagine felt very different than the show that you did on this very day last year, huh? Uh, just a little bit different. I'll tell you this. Uh, in addition to covering the Jaguars, I'm actually an AP top 25 basketball voter. And apparently I left out Xavier this week. And so their mm. fans are like coming for me. And my friends are like, gosh, how do you deal with this? And I'm like, well, my day job is a pretty much positive vibe central right now with the Jacksonville Jaguars. So th- that's how you deal with it. It's it's great compared to the coping mechanisms we had to use last year when uh, Urban Meyer was the head coach <laughs> for the Jacksonville Jaguars. It really is incredible how different this team looks from the one that we saw last year. And from where I sit, it kind of looks like, wow, what a difference a coach can make, um, she says sarcastically. And obviously, they did make some changes in the offseason. They brought in some pieces that weren't there last year. And Lawrence has another year under his belt. Um, But ultimately, how much of this do you think can simply be attributed to that coaching change? I would say almost all of it, quite frankly. Um, uh, yes, certainly Trevor Lawrence developing in his second season was the hope and the promise of most quarterbacks in the National Football League do make that jump their second year. But most quarterbacks didn't have the dysfunction that Trevor Lawrence was surrounded by in year one. I actually was really surprised when Doug, I believe it was when Doug was on Scott Van Pelt's uh, Sports Center the other night. He he said, and like I, I obviously now with the Jaguars in the situation they are, they can be a little bit more honest. He said, you know, Trevor... Trevor was not in a good place. And this is a kid who has been the best everywhere he's been from the time he was in middle school to high school to college. And he was not in a good place. And while I believe in my, you know, relationship work, you know, professional relationship with Trevor, he was going to find a way because he continued to find a way last year. I don't, I think there's no doubt in my mind that not only did Doug and the calming presence he has help Trevor become who he has now become. But I also think that Doug and Trevor are extremely similar in their even keel approach to life. And so that's why it truly was a match made in heaven. And then you combine that with the brain trust of Jim Bob Cooter, Press Taylor, Mike McCoy, everybody else they've surrounded Trevor Lawrence with, including CJ Beathard, the backup quarterback. I have to give a shout out to the Iowa Hawkeyes, of course. Um, uh, Second time covering CJ in his uh, football career for me. And, uh, you know, Trevor, Trevor says that those guys have made all the difference in the world. And obviously, you know, the playmakers that they added to this roster have helped as well. But I think Doug deserves every, every single award nomination, whatever may come his way. He's not in the business for that. Obviously the ultimate goal is a Super Bowl, but I do think it's made a world of a difference. Jaguars are a team that I think they don't get a lot of national attention. Um, So aside from the fantasy pieces that people have and follow closely, I think there's a lot that people don't really know about this team. Um, What do you think that we should know going into the playoffs? That's a great question. Uh, I'll give a shout out to uh, our ESPN reporter here in town, Mike DiRocco, because in a similar vein, you know, because he's writing for a national outlet, a lot of his pieces have to be about fantasy, about more of the bigger names and the macro situations going on here in Jacksonville. And so it was kind of funny because as this five game win streak began, 
what really was a driving force, not just in the five game win streak, but them winning six of, I believe it was eight or whatever it exactly was, was actually backup safety. Dewey Wingard, the pride of the University of Wyoming, uh, who apparently gave a rousing pep talk following the loss to the Giants in which Christian Kirk came up about two feet short of what would have been the go-ahead game-winning touchdown. And Dewey basically told them, we're going to keep chipping away at the rock. It's going to be okay. We're there. We're we're only losing games by one possession. Compared to where we were last year and the year before that, we're there. We're at the doorstep. We have to keep chipping away at the rock. And that's what they did. And now it's panned out. And somewhere along the way, Dewey picked up on the phrase, it was always the Jags. Don't really know where it came from. He says it just popped into his brain. And that then has become the rallying cry, not just for the team inside the locker room. Um, you can check out on uh, the 10 Excel social channels, Dewey screaming it into my uh, camera phone a lot <laughs> um, in post-game locker room situations over the past six weeks. Um, but also for the fan base, the rally towels that fans were waving around at the game actually had the moniker. It was always the Jags on it. They have a hashtag going as well. And so who would have thought that this backup safety who last year was starting over third round pick Andre Cisco and the fan base had written him off and wanted him shot on a cannon to the moon. And now he's the one that actually has become this vocal leader for this team. He was critical as well in stopping Lamar Jackson in that big win over the Baltimore Ravens. He came up with some big tackles as well on Derrick Henry this past Saturday night. And so I would say that that story in and of itself is one that maybe the national media doesn't know about. But if you're wondering why the Jags had this belief when everything was going wrong around them during the month of October, it's because of guys like Dewey and that mantra that they kept. Uh, that story, by the way, reminds me so much of my days um, covering Los Angeles teams regionally and how frequently, and I think that you know this is something that happens quite a bit, where you're like, when you know the team and you cover the team, you're like, that guard is the best soundbite. And after they win the biggest game ever, that's the guy I want to run to and get him first while everyone else goes to the quarterback or the star running back or the wide receiver who are trained not to say anything like that's the guy. But one of the things that you fight or what, what I have fought like when at the national level is they're like, no, 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 no. I would like you to only talk to Trevor Lawrence. That's the soundbite that we're going to get. And you're like, but it's so good. I promise you, this is the gold that you're looking for. And you're just not going to get it. Well, I'll tell you this one. I mean, even on the field, as you know, everyone's running around celebrating post game and I'm trying to capture all the video of it. I went looking for Dewey after I ran around with Josh Allen, who uh, he and I go way back. My dad and him actually are from the same hometown. And obviously after he had the game winning touchdown, clearly that was the first player I was going to go film. But the second player I looked for was Dewey. Um, and it was funny because I turned around to look for him because after all these games, I always like, you know, get the camera up in his face and he screams, it was always the Jags and fans go nuts. And that was when I turned around and saw Zay Jones and co-owner Tony Khan of AEW and Fulham Acclaim in this wild embrace that has now gone viral across the internet. Um, just true, like, happiness and joy. I think I posted it and said, this is the greatest 10 seconds of video, the most heartwarming you'll watch. And so, yeah, but the funny part was, I tell people, I told a bunch of people today, I was looking for the backup safety. And instead I found, uh, you know, one of the star wide receivers and the owner's son. And that was, ended up being, uh, you know, a video that's the national audience enjoyed. And I think that, you know, they should enjoy because I think that that kind of tells the story of who this squad is. I have a follow-up about Zay that I want to get to in just a minute. But first, um, since you're talking about the videos of 
the Jaguars after that game and their celebration. Um, one of the reasons that I thought I want to go talk to Mia is because I was scrolling late at night on Twitter, you know, with the sound off as you do, like, cause there's other people around and the shot of you interviewing Marvin Jones, I had to stop and watch it. And I couldn't turn the sound up because people were sleeping, but I'm like, I, you, the look on his face of just pure joy was so genuine and authentic and joyful that it caught my eye and made me stop and just watch him talk on silent for a little bit. Um, this, this, this turnout, do you get the sense that this almost means more? I mean, every team wants to go to the postseason. Every team celebrates after they clinch that birth. The fact that they went through what they went through last year, the guys that were here last year, and then are able to, I think, do it under the radar from a national media standpoint. No one talks about the Jags, like I said. And I think that because the division is, everybody sort of agrees that the division is, you know, like the worst division in the AFC. The fact that they're coming out of there, there's a sense of like us against the world that I almost think makes it feel even more fulfilling to them to accomplish this. Oh, undoubtedly. And what was so funny was the fact that Marv was, I think, like, the seventh or eighth guy that I had interviewed and everyone else was punting on it. They're just like, yeah, it just means a lot regardless. It just means a lot regardless. And Marv has been, and this is partially because he's the oldest guy on the team outside of Corey Peters. And he was the oldest guy on last year's roster. He has been the most vocal about the dysfunction that occurred one year ago, both on and off the record. Um, and so th that's why, you know, I was optimistic, especially when I went over to give him like a handshake of like my guy, you did it. And he was like, Mia, hug me. Um, I was like, uh, I was like, you know, I, I knew that Marv was ready. And apparently he had already spoken with Jeremy Fowler of ESPN and had been very upfront about um, the team wasn't broken when they came into this season, it was one person last year that was broken. And so, yeah, I mean, Mar Marv is such a, such an outstanding human being. Oh, I'm going to move the microphone there. Uh, an outstanding human being. He actually has been giving me um, some flack because uh, the one class that I failed in college, I didn't fail it. I got like a C minus and just skated by um, was intermediate Spanish too. And he says, I need to go back and try to become bilingual like him. Because if you saw his interview with uh, ESPN Deportes, man, he he's, he's going to have a career long after he's done playing because he is bilingual. Uh, he has traveled to Spain. He's traveled over the world. So a great guy. But no, he was very forward about the fact that when I asked him, if I had told you last year, this time last year, at the, at the clown game, yes, that we would oh. be having this conversation, he said, uh, no. And then he went on to say, there were many moments when we didn't have a coach that I was looking around saying, what did I get myself into coming to Jacksonville? As much as it was a risk, as much as it was something new and they were building something cool, he was looking around like, what did I do? But from him to Logan Cook, the fifth year punter, um, to Roy Robertson Harris, every one of those guys said that once they knew that Doug was the coach, they felt a little bit better in February about their chances because they believed that this locker room had talent. They just weren't putting it together under the leadership of the previous regime. And so I think it's very, it's very rewarding. And I think it's very rewarding to the process that Doug stuck to. Doug did not come into TIA bank field and say, I'm a Super Bowl winning head coach. You should respect me. That was the last thing he did. A lot of my co-hosts actually, you know, we, it was kind of the butt of our jokes that Doug gave the veterans mini camp off in June, the mandatory mini camp as part of OTAs. He gave them that off because he felt that they had met all the benchmarks he was hoping for and he wanted to continue to earn their respect. And he felt that this team still had to heal 
And so, of course, my my co-hosts kind of ran with that. And they're like, healing? This team won three games and they won one game the year before. Why do you need to heal? Well, who's laughing now? From a football standpoint, what do you see on the field that makes you think that this is a team that might be able to make a run in the postseason? And on the flip side, what are the things that they're going to need to kind of shore up that are going to need to be better in order for that to happen? Yeah, I think from an offensive standpoint, the answer is once again, Doug Peterson. We were marveling on Thursday Night Football from the press box just how aesthetically pleasing the offensive play calling is. I know it was very clunky against Tennessee Titans. I believe that that was a byproduct of what Mike Vrabel and the defensive staff or the Titans were trying to accomplish, which was to make it a rock fight. And they succeeded in that. Um, But I think that Doug does an incredible job of scheming up something and then sticking with it, whether it was Evan Ingram against the Tennessee Titans, where he torched them for 200 plus yards, whether it was Zay Jones against these same chargers week three or against the Ravens or against the Dallas Cowboys, which mind you, his father played for the Dallas Cowboys. He scored three touchdowns on six catches against those same Cowboys. Um, he finds something that works and he sticks with it. And while yes, he and his, uh, his mentor, Andy Reed, if you saw the ring around the Rosie from over the weekend, uh, they both yes. certainly like to get cute. And sometimes it's not, at the most opportune moment. Doug's a genius. Like I, I mean, when it comes to offensive play calling, and yes, he's going to have some boneheaded mistakes. A lot of people were upset with the fumble. Uh, Jamal Agnew on the re- double reverse between him, ETN, and Trevor on Saturday night. It's going to happen when you're taking the risks that they do. So from an offensive standpoint, I believe that Doug Peterson is one of the best play callers in the National Football League. And so that's always going to be a feather in your cap. And Trevor Lawrence has been executing at such a high level that that combination is clearly an advantage for the Jaguars. On the defensive side of the ball, about seven or eight weeks ago, people were calling for defense coordinator Mike Caldwell's head on a stick. They felt that the first-year play caller had regressed, that he was losing the respect of the guys in the locker room, and he has completely done a 180 in that regards. The Jaguars aren't in the postseason, if not for that defense's performance in the second half. And what I will tell you against the Titans, and what I will tell you is in speaking with a bunch of the veteran guys in that locker room, specifically Arden Key, uh, the first-year Jaguar, veteran defense of Lyman, he said that you are seeing Mike Caldwell come into his own because not only is he truly making halftime adjustments based on what the opposition is scheming up, but he's also Mm -hmm. recognizing, hey, my defense is doing this well, so let's just really hone in on that. And so I I think you're seeing the growth of a defense coordinator as well as the players on that side of the ball. So the matchup this week against the Chargers is one that we've seen already this year. I think circumstances were a little bit different earlier in the year. uh, Justin Herbert was dealing with the ribs injury. James Robinson was the leading rusher. I mean, that's how long ago it was looking here. He had 17 rush attempts for 100 yards because you can do that against the Chargers defense. Um, The Chargers are a team that I picked in the offseason to be my Super Bowl pick. They've dealt with so many injuries. They're finally getting healthy. did they hurt players when they played inexplicably yesterday? I don't know. We'll find out uh, with updates on Mike Williams as the week goes on. Um, but I don't know after that game where they actually did try to win and were unable to win against the Denver Broncos, if I'm feeling all that confident about what the Chargers are sending into the postseason. Um, what do you think is worth taking away from that first matchup? And how do you think the Jaguars match up against the scene, the team that you saw play yesterday from L.A.? Well, I'll tell you this. I had people inside of the bank on to the Jaguars staff texting me during the game saying, what the heck are they doing? Right. Like, what what is he doing? Like, we're watching this and we're in shock right now that he's keeping them in. And that was before Mike Williams got hurt um, and before Joey Bosa got nicked up and before Kenneth Murray got hurt. And so, my heart. yeah, well, you know, I uh, 
nothing with all due respect to Brandon Staley seems like a great guy. I know a lot of my LA media friends love him. Um, but I have to admit, uh, I have nicknamed him the big brain over the past two years, uh, stemming from the events of last year's regular season finale. Um, so yeah, the big brain, big brains again, uh, I'll be curious to see now how they bounce back. Uh, no, I, I think that in terms of matchups, like you alluded to from the previous meeting, which Doug Peterson said it was so long ago. Can you really draw upon that as, you know, as relevant to this? I do think that the Chargers run defense has struggled as, or excuse me, not their run. Yes, they have struggled yeah. in run defense. Yes, mm-hmm. they have struggled in run defense. And I think that that is just what the doctor ordered for the Jaguars, a team that only rushed for 19 yards against the toughest run defense in the league and the Tennessee Titans on Saturday night. Uh, Travis Etienne, uh, he, he looked so frustrated. He looked so frustrated in the locker room. I mean, obviously, he, you know, he, a win's a win and he told me after the Jets game in which they also kind of struggled to run the ball a little bit he said look against the Titans I had 30 total yards against the Denver Broncos I had a 146 or whatever his career high was that night and I would have preferred the Tennessee Titans run performance every single day twice on Sunday compared to the Broncos because we got the win and so I do think, though, that this team needs to be able to run the ball for them to have success because you saw what happens when defenses are teeing off against Trevor Lawrence and against this passing game. And so I, I think that that is probably the most important part of this game. If the Jaguars can run the ball, I expect the Jaguars to have success. The Jaguars run defense has truly come all the way back around to their top five level performance that they were having in the early parts of this year, including against Austin Eckler and the Chargers in week three. And so that is why, I mean, if they can stop Eckler and Travis Etienne can run, then yes, in theory, outside of Justin Herbert having a meteoric performance, which is always on the table because he is a nuclear weapon, just like Trevor Lawrence, then yeah, I I would say this one favors the Jaguars if the statistics are to lead us to believe that, yes, the Chargers still struggle in run defense and the Jaguars are very good at it. It's a home game for the Jags. What are we going to see from the crowd? According to Colin Coward, they don't have fans. Um, I, I heard that apparently at least a lot of our, uh, our in listeners... my experience from Twitter, they have rabid fans. Who you would do think. not like being re- disrespected, even when they're not actually being disrespected. That's Correct. my read on the Jaguars they, fans. They are keeping receipts and they Twitter search. Yes. I can't. I can tell you that as a, as someone who was here for the clown movement, I will wave the white flag. I already have. Listen, Trent Balky, you were right. I'm sorry. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that this is a fan base that's not afraid to be vocal. And they were very vocal on Saturday night against the Titans. 70,050 fans. That was a new record, regardless of playoff or regular season for the stadium. I'm expecting more of the same this Saturday. I feel bad for all the fans that I met that came in from California and Massachusetts and Wisconsin. And now they're like, well, now I got to turn around and fly right back. Um, there are worse things to happen in this world. Um, that's why credit cards were invented folks. And so I expect another packed house tickets are going like hotcakes right now here in the city of Jacksonville. It's all anyone wants to talk about. And what I think is most fascinating is that I think that a lot of people look at 2017 and that was a team that was built on its defense. And Defense wins championships, yada, yada, yada. I totally respect that. But the fact of the matter is, is that this feels like it's not built on that quicksand that perhaps 2017 was built on. And again, hindsight's 2020. So in the moment, yes, it looks like the Jaguars would then go to the Super Bowl in 2018. No one really knew that the locker room was already teetering on the brink of some sort of stability just by the nature of the personalities they had there. They have so much more of an even keel approach and also a long-term approach under Doug Peterson. Because he sat at the dais at his introductory presser now almost one year ago and said, this is not an overnight fix, but we are going to win early. That was that was the goal. 
And that's what they're doing. And so now that they've got momentum, can they take that to another level and make a run in the playoffs? Absolutely, because I've never seen a Jaguars team in my five years covering five seasons, I should say, covering the team have this much confidence at this point of the season. Well, and if you're going to be strong on one side of the ball or stronger on one side of the ball, you want it to be offense. It's a lot more predictive. It's a quarterback driven um, league. And that's I think that's part of the issue is that uh, under and granted, I love the man, but under Tom Coughlin, the mm-hmm. the mind, mindset of great defense and a great run game can still win you ball games. I don't know how true that is in the 21st century and the 2020s or whatever we're calling this decade we live in now. And so I I think that that also played a very large role in it. And I do think for as much as I also love Doug Marone, Doug Peterson is not only a leader of men, but he's brilliant and he has his tentacles in every single aspect of the Jaguars organization. I think that that is for the betterment of all involved. I'm really excited for this game. The Saturday night game in primetime chargers at Jaguars, Mio O'Brien who covers the team in Jacksonville for 10, 10 XL. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Good stuff from Mia. And you can follow her on Twitter at Mia O'Brien TV and at 10, 10 XL in Jacksonville for more on the Jaguars throughout the playoffs. Now for more on the playoffs and how long maybe the Jaguars will be in it. Potentially we turn to Kevin Cole from the unexpected points newsletter and podcast. He was formerly a senior data scientist at PFF and has been on the show in that capacity before. Welcome back, Kevin. Well, thank you for having me back. I was just uh, reminiscing with your producer here about how we, we propelled the Bengals to their success, I think, by saying that they were undervalued in the power rankings and now they're they're winning ever since. You know, coin tosses be damned. They're, they're, they keep coming. It, it was us. It was us. So let's try and nail the next one. Um, okay, who do you do think heading into the postseason might be in that position this year? Well, okay. I don't know if we're going to get a big run out of this team, but if I were going to look at a team and say undervalued, perhaps, versus what we think, and they have a really, really tough matchup in the first week. But if Tua could come back, I think the oh. Dolphins have a chance. Now we'll see about Tua. He is currently, I believe, in step three of a five-step concussion protocol. So this isn't like earlier this year where I think he passed the concussion protocols quickly and then was just held out. So he's still in the concussion protocol at this point. Um, You know, we're not inside the building. We're not talking to the doctors. We don't know exactly what's going on. But if he can play, you know, they put up a pretty good fight in Buffalo when he came back. Um, They were pretty good in the first half against Green Bay before he got that concussion in the second half. And the defense has been surprisingly okay. So I think they're a team that's that's been pretty good. And if you think about like coaches and the job that Mike McDaniel's done, I mean, he's had Skylar Thompson in there playing multiple games, Teddy Bridgewater in and out, the game plan getting torn up uh, multiple plays into some of these games. I don't know. I think they're an interesting team, at least. I've seen people in Miami, or I saw last week um, prior to the game suggesting, and I think they were like local people who were just saying this. I don't think it was a report. Maybe I'm wrong. They were saying like, if they lose this game, then they should get rid of everybody. Like fire McDaniels. I was like, what are you watching? Like McDaniel, like, and it's McDaniel. I have to keep reminding myself of that. No, but he's incredible. And and I agree with you. I think the Dolphins were the team and they're very different with Tua. Like, will they have Tua? Will they not have Tua? But I think of the teams that were in the mix for that seven seed, the best team got in. Yeah, no, I agree. Again, contingent on the fact that Tua was there. And yeah, I mean, Mike McDaniel, if you're a nerd like me, he has the aesthetic. So he has a nerd aesthetic. He nailed that. In the offseason, I was a little... 
question him a little bit um, how he talked, but as far as his actions during the season and even in this last game, multiple fourth and five tries from midseason going forward his own side of the field. He really has no fear and he's doing a great job in that in that area, too, I think. Yeah, they've got a lot of pieces. So let's say that the Dolphins don't have Tua. Then, um, you know, I, I think I think it's fair to say that we all have high expectations for clearly the one seeds and then the Niners in the NFC. Is there anyone else in the NFC that you think is playing in such a way that like we talk about building momentum heading into the postseason and sometimes there's a team that just gets hot at the right time? Is there anyone in the NFC that you think has the pieces that could in a way that doesn't feel incredibly fluky upset one of those top two teams and come out of that conference? Yeah, I mean, the Cowboys would who you'd slot in next. I mean, I have the Niners and the Eagles as being in a different tier than the Cowboys, but I think people see the Cowboys being in that in that range. But at the same time, you know, they're going to be in Tampa for this game, you know, Tampa by the division by winning the division ends up getting the home field. I'm looking now. The Cowboys are two and a half point favorites, which isn't a big differential. I don't know. The Bucs have been one of these teams. They've head faked me a few times this season with thinking they might break out of slumps and then continuing to go back into slumps. But you know, the talent is there. The talent is there. Maybe they can get things together. They're another team where they win that first game. I don't know that they could potentially go on and win. Also, I would put them in the same a similar category, I guess, to the Cowboys, whereas I think most people would have them a clear tier below the Cowboys and other teams and their ability to, you know, even even come out of the NFC. You never know what can happen. From from your perspective as a guy who's crunching all of the different data points, what what jumps out at you is to like what's the explainer for the Bucks this year? Where have they had problems, and then when they do have success, what is different? Well, I mean, the explainer for why I think the Bucks are better than most people think is, I, in a schedule adjusted basis, their defense has still been pretty good. So their defense has still been pretty good, despite the fact that they had a lot of injuries to start the season. Once it's rounded together. They had some struggles along the way, no doubt about it. But I think a lot of teams we've seen defensive play can be very up or down this season. I don't see their defense as being that much different than someone like Dallas. And yet I see them in the middle range as far as what their offense has been this season. Not as good as Dallas, but something that could get a little bit better. And when it comes to offensively what they've been able to do, they still have a lot of weapons there. I don't know. I'm just still going to lean on looking beyond what we see from this season. You know, Godwin, who was injured, who has come back and this season and gotten a little bit better as time has gone along. Mike Evans disappeared for many seasons and then had three monster touchdowns a couple of weeks ago. So they still have those pieces. It's just really going to be about getting that protection. So if they can figure out the protection for Brady, I still think he can be effective. And for me, I don't see the physical decline necessarily with how he's playing. He's being bothered by that interior your pressure. But I think if things can come together, they can still be an effective offensive team to go along with the defense that's looked pretty good. Talk about Dallas a number of times. You've brought them up. They are a team that confuses me. Um, And obviously what we saw from them this past weekend was just atrocious and mind boggling. Um, What do you make of them? Because they also played, you know, Houston played them close. I think Houston's just that team that they're going to play a lot of teams close. You know, they're, they're like, they proved, especially yesterday, they're a bunch of fighters. They just don't have the talent, you know, necessarily to win some of those games. But then they lost to Jacksonville. And I think most people think that Dallas is a better team than them. Uh, but then they turn around and they beat Philadelphia, albeit with Gardner Minshew. Like, I just don't know what to make of Dallas this year. And I don't know that I feel like they're a team I have a whole lot of confidence in heading into the postseason. 
Yeah, I mean, I bucket them in a fairly large third tier of teams um, in the same tier as someone like Tampa. So that's a tier where you could get to the Super Bowl. You could even win the Super Bowl, but you're clearly below the others. And I think also combined with the fact they don't have that home field is going to be an issue for them. Yeah, the defense really started the season extremely strong and held the team together while Cooper Rush was there. And I think it's been a little bit more dicey since then. They had some pretty easy matchups along along the way that helped boost their results, and it hasn't gotten as good going forward. You mentioned the yeah, this what happened this last week. I don't know if we can throw it out. I'd never like to throw anything out, but they averaged two point eight yards per play. Uh, you know, pick six in there. It was it was the worst offensive performance of the year for a team where we talked about since Dak has been there. That I think they've been the highest scoring. So I'm going to partially discount that. I'm going to say they have as good of a chance as anyone. But I just think offensively and defensively, they're probably not on the same level defensively as a team like the 49ers. And then offensively, they're not going to be on the same level as the Eagles or the Bills or the Chiefs. So that puts them more in this third tier ish sort of range. We have not mentioned the Vikings, who are the three seed. And I think you and I are probably on the same page as being people who agree that the Vikings, although they have this impressive uh, win-loss record, haven't actually played all that well this year. Uh, this is, I think, probably someone like you, like, like a nightmare team, because people talk about the value of winning those close games, and that's the sign of a good team. But then there are a lot of other metric points that would point to, no, 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 they're actually not a good team. What do you make of the Vikings? Vikings. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm just going to look at the results that I had from my kind of power rankings and, and ratings after week 17, since week 18 is a little bit difficult to, to judge there. So yeah. I had him as being the 21st best team in the NFL and Viking fans don't yeah. like to hear that, but at the same time, the difference between 21 and maybe 12 or 11, isn't that big of, of a difference. Um, and the most important thing for them. And I think is the fact that they have the home field advantage, number one, and is the fact that they're playing the Giants. While I have the Giants as being slightly better, they would be the second worst or the, the second least good, or whatever you want to frame it, team going into the playoffs. So it's an ideal matchup from them and the best chance they have to get a win in the wild card. And then once you get a win in the wild card, we're talking about three victories to a Super Bowl. A lot of teams, things can fall into place. Injuries can happen. Other things can happen. They're a three-point favorite at home here. So they're seen as being eh, about equal with the Giants, maybe slightly better than the Giants. So this is a great spot for them to you know, prove the doubters wrong. And if they want to have a rallying cry in the locker room, then no one believes in them. I think they have a pretty credible case that is actually, that is actually true this season. The the Vikings, I was thinking yesterday were were a team that I, I know some people were thinking would probably be incentivized to go out there and play hard um, because they technically could get up to the two. I wondered uh, aloud on the show the, that I was doing yesterday whether or not they actually wanted to get to the two. Because to me, it, not knowing who the seven or was going to be, which would obviously be your first opponent, um, if that was the Packers who had just annihilated them the week before and or uh, the Lions, which were on the table at the time, another division rival, you can play them three times in a row. I thought they probably actually would benefit from playing the Giants, which is less a knock against the Giants. Well, I guess it is sort of a knock against the Giants, but more so a matchup issue with the two teams from the NFC North, not so much the Seahawks. Do you feel like the, the Giants are the best matchup for them that was left? Or do you think 
you know, knowing what we now know that they would have been better suited playing the Seahawks. No, I think it is the best matchup for them. I mean, the Seahawks I have as being a little bit better, slightly better there. Um, I think when it comes to the two or three seed, I mean, there's always all these different scenarios of who you're playing, who you're not playing. I mean, the one thing you could definitively play out if you think the 49ers are going to win is that if the top, you know, four teams, or let's say the top three teams win, plus the Cowboys or whoever it may be there, you know, getting that second seed and getting to play at home potentially against the 49ers or whoever would have been the third seed is going to be a big deal, especially considering the fact that the last time they went to San Francisco, I believe, was in the 2019 playoffs as the lead up to the Super Bowl. And it was pretty ugly. They lost 27 to 10 in San Francisco. San Francisco ran all over them that game. So I bet Vikings fans are probably going to going to going to really, you know, not be happy about having to make that trip to the West coast and go to San Francisco. If it ends up being the case. In the AFC, we saw two teams take uh, very different approaches to uh, how incentivized they were to play with what we thought they had to gain, or in the chargers case, what we knew they did not have to gain. You had the Ravens who technically could have gone up to the five could have forced a coin flip for home field in the first round against the Bengals, chose not to, chose to rest their starters and effectively wave the white flag. And then on the other hand, you've got the Chargers who played um, mind-bogglingly for me well into the third quarter. Uh, those starters there, I think that uh, Brandon Staley might have um, given Sean Payton some negotiating power if they actually ended up calling him after the season. Uh, with that decision, um, is there is there any evidence that, you know, would lead you to believe that one of them made the right decision or the wrong decision? Or um, do you feel strongly one way or the other? Um, I mean, I think that Staley, I think we could probably say he made the wrong decision playing him that long. Um, especially curious from the fact that we already saw Earlier this season, Justin Herbert with the rib issues and putting him back into that game when they had a pretty low chance of ending up winning, keeping him in, I believe, the next week or two weeks later against Jacksonville, where they were down, I don't know, they were down probably three touchdowns uh, for a lot of that game and continuing to play Herbert then at that point. So I guess what we've learned about Staley, and again, this is we can be tricked, is we thought he was maybe our new kind of like nerd analytics kings, but he's just going on vibes. He's going on vibes. So he had some vibes going on about wanting to play his guys in this game, maybe a little bit too long. And, you know, sometimes vibes can can lead you in the wrong direction. Maybe they wanted to have a win going into the final game. I'm not sure what's going on there, but I, well, I didn't get that. It. They didn't get that either. Yeah. And they gave some good vibes to Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson for his offseason, you know, Instagram posts. He'll have some good vibes there. And the Ravens, I mean, do you know what's going on with Lamar Jackson? I don't know what's going on with Lamar Jackson. I can understand why it maybe wasn't enough of an incentive to play these last couple of weeks, knowing that they were going to get into the playoffs. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of buzz that will he even be back for this week? I think he has to be back for this week. I mean, I don't know how it could be any different than that. I know there, but like there's some hinting of even contract sort of things, but that just seems like it would be, you know, uh, you know, biting off his nose despite his face sort of thing if he were to sit out a game like that because it's not going to help his contract situation going forward so so he'll be back um ideally you'd want to be at home but i do think the Ravens are another team that maybe we're sleeping on a little bit like the dolphins because of the fact that it's been a long time since we've seen them operate at full strength yeah well uh 
the Ravens have looked so bad on offense without yeah. Lamar, but even with Lamar earlier this season, it's like, he is the offense. Right. And then sometimes he can hit Mark Andrews and you know, he's got one good pass catcher, but other than that, we never really know who it's going to be or what it's going to look like, except for Lamar Jackson, making big plays with his legs. Uh, did, did, I guess they feel a little wild cardy in that sense because you you don't have a set of data points heading into this game. Like you just don't know. Do you feel like you do have a pretty good ability to predict if Lamar Jackson is on the field or there are too many variables of unknowns? It, 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 not the least of which being just like how hurt is he? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big point. So uh, th- they've had an interesting arc to their season because the, the defense did not really play well to start the season. And a lot has been made of the Roquan Smith trade and how that turned around the defense. I mean, some of it is probably his addition. Some of it is timing. Some of his guys like Kyle Hamilton starting to develop and become better players, but the defense is playing better. So I'm happy about that going into the playoffs. Offensively, they were being carried by kind of these really big plays that were being made. Lamar Jackson was having 60, 50 yard runs. Rashad Bateman, when he was still healthy, had some long uh, passes and catches that were going on there. Devin Duvernay had some long catches and that was unsustainable. That faded during the middle of the season. Mark Andrews missed some time. The offense really struggled. I think if Andrews is Andrews is back, they've had some time to figure things out. I think they'll be pretty solid offensively, but in some ways they might even be, for me, like a more sustainably good team right now than they were at the beginning of the season when the defense wasn't playing well and the offense needed to make all of these big plays, which just wasn't going to continue. That's interesting. It's uh, interesting too, that we'll see all of that and get our answers against the Bengals who are a team that clearly have finished very, very strong. And if momentum is a real thing, I would argue that they're probably the team that carries the most of that into the postseason. I mean, the chiefs have been good all year long, so I don't know that there is momentum to be derived from that. We're all confident that they're going to play well, but do you think that the Bengals have uh when you compare like what we saw from them, the first half of the season to the second half of the season, they feel like a very different team that's figured out a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think they figured out a lot of stuff. Uh, the blocking has been better for Joe Burrow. I think Burrow has figured out how to maybe negotiate a little bit better, whether it's play calling or within the pocket to avoid some of those bigger mistakes. I mean, they had a lot of mistakes early in the season. I mean, the the first game of the season like typifies it with four interceptions, yet still almost winning the game. So I think fundamentally they have been um, a better team this season than they were last year when they went to the Super Bowl. Now they probably interesting. You know, they 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 got to the Super Bowl in a way. It wasn't the most impressive way of getting there, but they were able to figure things out and get through, you know, the Raiders, get through Tennessee, and then in the second half, really turn things around against the Chiefs, which ended up propelling them into the Super Bowl. So I think they're they're a better team. They're solidly for me in this second tier. So a tier above the Dolphins and the Ravens and others. So I, I think they're extremely solid right there. I guess for me, sometimes though, I don't necessarily see a big turnaround because my numbers had them as being a really good team, even though their record didn't reflect it the first half of the season. Yeah. Understood. And I can see why it would. Uh, one of the, I kind of sat down last week and spent some time looking at some quarterback stats and, you know, what pops is being something that's different than what we think. And, you know, there were some like, Kenny Pickett, um, Kenny Pickett was the highest graded PFF quarterback in the last four weeks heading into week 18, which just blew my mind. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. There are some things 
you know, they're about like Daniel Jones's adjusted completion percentage and and stuff that when we're headed into the off season, thinking about teams taking the next steps that popped at me. But the reason that I bring this up now is that the thing that I noticed for Joe Burrow is that his time to throw in um, from weeks 14 to 17. So the month prior to week 18 was the shortest in the NFL by a lot, like 2.3 seconds. Is that is that a sign that the offensive line still has some issues and that that's one of the ways that they've figured out kind of a workaround that he just needs to get the ball out fast? Or is that something different? Uh, I think it partially reflects that. I think it also reflects the fact that they've gone more pass heavy, more empty formation, which necessitates getting the ball out early and allows you from the shotgun. Also, you know, they went heavy shotgun. There was a, they made a flip during midway through the season where I think they took every pass in the shotgun against the saints. And then the next week they took um, every snap except for two or three out of the shotgun. So you can get the ball out quicker. If you don't have to take a drop, you can get the ball out quicker, quicker. If you're not doing a play action fake, these are all parts of what they're doing there. And he has, you know, multiple credible pass receivers, including Hayden Hurst, who's looked pretty good the last couple of weeks here. So that that also allows him to get rid of the ball quickly. He's adapted like we've seen Mahomes this year with this shorter average depth of target game that is almost a necessity now with the way defenses are playing. So I think it's just really the whole offense is adapted and is playing the way you have to play now to minimize the downside of taking the sacks that we saw in the first half of the season. Chargers Jaguars on Saturday night. Which of those two teams do you think you have more confidence in? Um, God, I have them right next to each other, honestly, in this one, which is, I've probably been a little bit lower on the chargers than others have been for most of the season and talk about vibes. I mean, I, I like Justin Herbert a lot. Like a lot of people like Justin Herbert a lot, but the numbers haven't been, you know, I've been kind of fighting against myself in, in this degree. Whereas Trevor Lawrence has been fantastic the second half of the season, but he wasn't very good this last week. Um, right. In some ways, you know, Josh Dobbs didn't look that much worse than he did. And he arrived in Tennessee, I think it was two weeks ago. So I'm just excited about the matchup between these these two guys, um, two quarterbacks who are obviously ascending, coming out in the last few draft classes here. And I like Doug Peterson a lot, too. And I think he is someone who probably isn't getting the coach of the year type of hype, but He's not only someone who's had success here and maybe the bar was set, you know, to the floor coming in with Urban Meyer, having been the head coach before, That's but he's had the success. <laughs> yeah. He's had the success before too. So it's not as if this is a fluky sort of thing there. So I don't know that they're at home. So for that reason, I would lean towards them slightly, but it's going to be a really exciting game. I think for both uh, fan bases and hopefully for everyone watching. Um, I want to ask you about something, and I mentioned this earlier in the show that you have brought up on Twitter and written about, and that has to do with what the Bears should do with their number one overall pick. And oh, I yeah, think we, we might disagree on this subject matter. <laughs> get ready. Get ready for how many months do we have until the draft? Yeah, we're going to have to. Talk here we about go. This. Chicago, yeah. you're on the clock for so many months. Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. What, 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 why is it that you think that they should consider taking a quarterback at number one? Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I'll just say I've been, I've been accused of, you know, clickbait sort of thing. If I was clickbaiting, I said they should take a quarterback with number one. I'm saying they should just, just consider it. And even that seems to be apocryphal for, for a lot of people to, to, to think about that. And I don't know that this goes back to, 
I just think one of the bigger mistakes that teams make is viewing the quarterback position differently than we view anything else in that we wait for a high profile prospect to play himself out of the position as opposed to say, we're going to have competition and play into the position. And as much as people think you can find talented quarterbacks later on in the draft, and sometimes you can, if we were going to say who are the most exciting, dynamic young quarterbacks in the NFL, I still think we would say, you know, Patrick Mahomes, who went 10th, Josh Allen, who went seventh, uh, Justin Herbert, who went six, Joe Burrow, who went one, uh, Trevor Lawrence, who went one. It's still, you know, you're, you're not necessarily getting like you can win with some other guys, but you don't necessarily get there. So whenever you have the first pick overall and you have a quarterback who you think has shown signs, but you're not sold on, at least I wouldn't be sold on at this point by any means. And I'm not a, a quarterback evaluator, but I look at big boards that are starting to form and things could change drastically over the next few months. But I'm consistently seeing one, two, or maybe even three quarterbacks in the top five to 10 picks that they, or five to 10 top players that people are evaluating. And when that's the case, I think you at least have to look at it and think about it. Um, are you not sold decision. on Justin Don't, Fields? No, I'm definitely not sold on, on Justin Fields. I mean, I don't think anyone was, okay. So I wrote this piece and this is a little bit different situation because it's not the number one pick. It was Jalen Hurts uh, being drafted in the second round, but you'd be surprised even in that before that draft, I said it was a great pick because you don't know what you have at quarterback, even though you think you do, unless you have like Patrick, one of those guys that I mentioned, right? Um, a lot of times you don't know, like Pat, Carson Wentz was remember he was a MVP adjacent type of guy in 2017. Maybe he would have won the MVP in 2017 if he didn't get injured. He got MVP votes that year. He got re-signed to a big contract and everyone in Philadelphia, at least, and I know because I interacted with them, was very upset about that second round pick being used on a quarterback because they needed to build around the quarterback and everything else there. So I'm just saying I would have a very small group who I'd say I'm completely sold on. And then for guys like Justin Fields, I'd say, we don't know. We're not quite sure yet. So if we're not sure, then you at least have to think about bringing in competition. And, and I also think, you know, if other people are sold on fields and you decide you want to go with fields still, or you want to go with the other quarterback, I think you can trade one of them out and get a decent return for it. Yeah. Um, some people think that you can't do that, but we have some evidence at least that you can do that by what's happened in the past. So uh, the feels like a slightly different comp to Philadelphia though, because Philadelphia has a pretty good roster around yes. uh, an unknown quarterback. Whereas Chicago is like, Hey, there are signs that maybe your quarterback, like he was the offense for the second half of the season. And there was just nothing else happening around him. So I think in this case, it feels a little bit different than that comp, just because you're like, let's use some resources to put things around him and actually find out. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. The problem is we don't have a lot of comps, which maybe also plays into why people see this as being an idea that you can dismiss out of hand. Now, I did, there is one comp I think is pretty close. There could be others here. Okay. And now we're, we're going back in history a little bit here. So 1989, the Dallas Cowboys, uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson comes in, Jerry Jones sends uh, Tom Landry packing. Jimmy Johnson comes in, he drafts Troy Aikman, First overall. Now, another move that he made, which didn't probably get as much scrutiny as it would have if he had done it the next season instead, but there was a supplemental draft that year. The second pick overall in the first round of the supplemental draft, he drafted Steve Walsh, another quarterback prospect that same offseason. And what happens is when you use a pick in the supplemental draft in the first round here, you forfeit your first round pick in the next NFL draft. Well, Ooh. 
the Cowboys went one in 15, that would have been the number one overall pick in the 1990 draft. So in fact, the Cowboys wow. in the same offseason used yeah. what would have been two number one overall picks on Troy Aikman and Steve Walsh. We know the story of what ended up happening during the 90s, everything else. And I think the ability to develop two quarterbacks at one at once, we don't really know, but there's some evidence, at least, you yeah. know, we got a Hall of Famer out of Aikman. And then when it comes to Walsh, they traded Walsh away a few weeks into the 1990 season. So they held him for maybe about 18 months. They got a first round pick and a third round pick in the 1991 draft. In the 1992 draft, they got a second round pick, which could become a first, was contingent first round pick. So that's, you know, that's not a bad return to bring in two prospects. Supposedly Jimmy Johnson liked Steve Walsh better than Troy Aikman and was convinced to take Troy Aikman because he just wanted to take Steve Walsh. So again, like we don't know. We, we really don't know what we're doing sometimes here. Um, and they they stunk. So they were one of 15 that season. And it didn't, you know, it, it, Troy Aikman probably got a, a few more concussions that season than he would have liked to have had for later on in his career, but it didn't sink him and, you know, relegate him to being a failure. So I think that is the closest analogy. So if anyone says it can't work, at least I can say, it has worked once before. I can't say it will work, but I say it has right. worked. Yeah. But without a sample size on Troy Aikman at that point, right? Like it's a Correct. full on shot in the dark. And so let's take another shot in the dark and maybe one of the two will hit sort of RG3 and Kirk Cousins, I suppose, would be a comp to that. Although a little bit different because it wasn't the first overall pick in the next year's draft. Anyway, some stuff to think about. For the next few months, and I would imagine that we're going to end up having that conversation uh, as oh, an yeah. NFL community. I'll uh, be on the hill. The- I'll be on the hill taking taking fire for the next <laughs> months with this one. Ready to go down with that particular ship or or to to stand up and say very proudly uh, like I would if I were in that situation. I was right. Yeah, well, well I, I don't think it's going to happen. It'll be lines. interesting if Caleb Williams from USC, again, I'm not a guy. If he was coming out, then I think some people yeah. might be with me, but uh, probably, probably not. We'll, we'll see. I agree. We do this about quarterbacks, though. We do it every year. Remember Tank for Tua? And then, yes. like, you know, every year there's a new hot commodity that immediately the next year becomes a massive question mark. And, you know, that, so I, I don't know. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit out on the whole, like, um, put all our chips in on the next year's quarterback class. Even last year, they sat there during the draft and they were like, next year is the year, you know? And then now I'm talking to draft analysts and they're like, this year it's good. It's better than last year, but next year is the year. And I'm like, okay, we're just going to do this every year now. Well, 2018 was the year that everyone was waiting for. We talked about during 2017 and then 2017 ended up having Patrick Mahomes and, you know, Deshaun Watson go 10 and 12. And everyone was waiting for, you know, they were waiting for Baker Mayfield, but he did go number one and Sam Darnold, everyone was waiting for Josh Allen. So they, they got that right. But Josh Rosen, not so much. So yeah, we, we don't know a whole lot. Kevin, where can we find the um, unexpected points work? Yeah, sure. So it's out on Substack, unexpectedpoints.substack.com. Pretty much every day, um, sadly, I'm putting something out because uh, I, I need I need to find some hobbies. Um, so I'm putting all that stuff out there. I have some stuff that I'm doing DFS related on single game contests. If you're into, uh, you know, getting a little sweat on these games, yes. these games, I'll I'll have that going for going forward. And of course, there's a podcast also there where I do an interview every week. Uh, with some other different analytical types. I had a pretty good interview last week with this guy, uh, StatsBomb CEO and founder, Ted Knudsen, who's who's really bringing some pretty interesting computer vision and other stuff there. So if you're into the nerd, the nerd, the nerd stuff, I'll, you're speaking I'll, be, my I'll, be, language. I'll censor, I'll censor it here. Um, then, you know, tune in, you'll, you'll probably enjoy it. 
Uh, was that going to be nerd shit? What do you, what do yeah. you, what do we yes, say? Okay. I'm I like, what I, are we censoring I, here? I don't know. You, we're censoring you said a here. word earlier that I was going to have to go look up in the dictionary. I was like, I'm going to interrupt you real quick to be like, what does that word mean? <laughs> but now apocryphal? because I, what or something that like was that? it. Yeah. What was, what is that apocryphal? I mean, it's normally used in the context of being like against some sort of religious doctrine. You know, it's like, it means like you're, you, you, it can't be spoken sort of thing. Like it's almost, it's so far beyond the pale that you're, you've gone against everything. So, yeah. Kevin, my goal is always to make people smarter and walk away with something they didn't know when they listened to this podcast. I don't know that like a vocabulary word was what I had in mind, but I'm pretty sure that a lot of people, um, this will check that box for them. Uh, also go follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin Cole. Is it two underscores? No, some, someone already had the two. You got three underscores. It's three I underscores. I know. I know. Eventually, you know, my great grandchildren will have 17, <laughs> 17 underscores on the end of their name. So yeah, I couldn't think of anything. I was stuck with Kevin Cole PFF for like weeks because of the check marks. And when I was able to get, I, I probably could have thought that through better i could have done nfl but i don't know i can't do the nfl thing at the end i'm more than the i'm about more than the nfl you know i'm a you're so well-rounded <laughs> i have the nfl at the end of my instagram but yeah uh, well you know it happens i i'm that girl and you're not that guy you you are the three underscore <laughs> Who guy. knows? I may capitulate and eventually put that in when people capitulate. Start... Look, yeah, now they're... you're just showing <laughs> off kevin bye-bye <laughs> thanks so much <laughs> all right By the way, love that we're already talking draft strategy just a few weeks away from the Senior Bowl. Plus, we get major rebuilding news to talk about with a handful of firings today. Unsurprisingly, Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona. Steve Keim also stepping away from his GM job. Already mentioned Lovey Smith fired in Houston. So it's team building season in full effect. And you know how much I love team building season. Don't love people losing their jobs, but the puzzle that ultimately is putting people in the right spots to build the team, love that. And we'll touch on that a little bit more on Wednesday when Danny Kelly from The Ringer joins the show. I do want to say real quick before I close out this episode, we had our last Fantasy Zone show yesterday on DirecTV. Those of us who work on the show liked to call it the best show nobody watched. Um, And I just want to say how much I thoroughly enjoyed doing that show. You know, people say when things end that it is bittersweet, and I get that. The sweet is supposed to be that you enjoyed it, and, you know, don't cry that it's over, smile because it happened, that kind of thing. But right now, I'm just bummed. I'm super sad that we're not going to be able to reconvene every Sunday and watch games together, um, that I'm not going to be able to sit on set with the people that I did for so many Sundays, James Coe and Guru and the Dr. Mark Addix and my on-air nemesis, Dan Helley, all of whom We're not only knowledgeable about the NFL and able to work without the safety net of a rundown for seven and a half hours straight on live television, but we're super fun to be with that entire time with no drama and nobody was like, this has to be about me. Everybody was super cool and you don't find that all the time in television where you put five people together and everybody's just easy to work with and all the people were awesome behind the scenes and I woke up 
on Sunday mornings and I was excited to go to work and I know how lucky I was to have that feeling. And since I had to wake up at 5.30 in the morning on those days, I think it's saying a lot for me that I was excited about it. And part of that, of course, was fueled by my love for the games and the fact that they were about to happen and the excitement about that. But a big part of that was just because of the people. It was a job I absolutely loved and felt really lucky to have, and I'm going to miss having it moving forward. And if you're one of the people who regularly watched that show and tweeted at us about it, I just want to say thank you. We saw you, Clark and Zach, and the rest of the people who sent us messages, and we really, really appreciated it. I really appreciated it, as I appreciate you listening here. I want to thank my guests today, Mia O'Brien and Kevin Cole. Andrew Emmer is our producer. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. And we'll be back Wednesday with another episode. Have a good one, guys, and we'll see you again then. SiriusXM Podcasts.